welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of 1% Better and I think if all things are being equal, this is episode 195 or 194 i think so we're we're, we're getting close to the, the, that next milestone whatever that means um and uh i'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to my guest tonight um xander schultz uh xander welcome to the podcast hey nice to be here man thanks for having me on and congrats on climbing up close to 200 episodes that's pretty impressive i remember when i got to 100 i thought that was important but uh, you get past a certain number and you just kind of forget about it you just and that's probably a better place to be not not kind of focusing too much on the number but on the actual content which at what point did you feel like you hit your stride Uh, like because i'm 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 on episode like 20 on my podcast and I'm still, I've had like two big like revelations slash evolutions already. At what point were you like, all right, man, I really feel like I'm, I'm finding it. 192. I know I'm joking. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I think it's when I, I suppose in the early stages, I was very, I would have spent a lot of time preparing and I would have spent a lot of time editing on the back end. And, and, and I, mm. you know, and I was learning the trade, if you will, like learning how totally. to do it all. Um, the interviews themselves, I would say by episode 10, I felt I was getting somewhere. Um, mm, I cool. knew what I was doing. I wasn't like, I'm not, I don't have an audio background or recording background. Um, what I do in my kind of day job is I do a lot of coaching of people. And I saw the podcast as an angle to to get better at asking questions, to be, get better at listening and obviously sharing really interesting stories. But I would say I stopped kind of, getting a bit anxious about episodes probably in the 20s or 30s but then I would find if you don't interview somebody for a couple of weeks you kind of take a little step back and you're kind of again a little bit yeah you know tightened up and I stuff certainly like felt that. that I feel like you know I'm 20 episodes into uh my podcast uh what we don't know and I feel like I'm just starting to tap into like the genuine curiosity I feel when I'm having a conversation like this. It's funny now I'm not in your shoes. So it feels it's easy to tap into from, from this position. Uh, Cause it, 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 you know, that natural rhythm versus, you know, maybe giving them too much space to speak or not, not interjecting in the way I naturally would in a conversation. It's uh, I feel like I'm just starting to tap into it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like, I've, I've never been one for scripting too many questions. I'd always have a, a few and then let right. it go. And, and I think, and now I'm, I'm much more casual and relaxed about that, not because I don't want to spend the time uh, and I don't, we don't have the time to get too detailed into it, but it is just a conversation and I don't overthink it, you know, and I think that's the place totally. to Totally, and you can totally miss like those like really awesome digressions if you're too set on hitting your seven questions you laid out or whatnot. Absolutely. And I have to ask you, I was going to ask you later, but Again, there's no there's, nobody's telling me how to do this. So, um, <laughs> one of your guests was one that I was very excited about, Andrew Yang. That's a big yeah. name to get, and uh, a really interesting character. I've actually I've been following him for a few years, and he's traded a few tweets with me or responses, but he, he's never been uh, able to, never committed to doing an interview. So that was tell me about that, and maybe just thinking of how anxious or nervous, or was that one that you were most kind of worried about, or? No, no, no. Andrew and I uh, have become friends over the last few years. Uh, I met him really early in his presidential campaign as uh, I started building a personal mission around eradicating desperation mm-hmm. and uh, then came then basic income, then came to learn that there was this guy running for president on a platform of basic income, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I think you know, should be and, and probably will be a part of the progressive platform that we fight for over the next few decades. And so um, you know, I'm a, a, a startup kid. Uh, I like thinking creatively about how to get the word out about things. And, uh, and so uh, as I was trying to figure out how I could help elevate uh, Andrew and his campaign, I, I looked up what the uh, most retweeted tweet of all time was. And it was a lottery of this. I think it was a Japanese entrepreneur that had uh, had an exit and he tweeted, hey, I'm going to give 10,000 bucks to 100 people that retweet this, randomly select 100 people that retweet this. I think it got like 4.1 million retweets or something oh. like that. And uh, so I brought that to Andrew and his team. I'm like, look, 
typically this would look really terrible in politics, but you're the basic income guy. Like you can totally do this because all you're doing is piloting, you know, your, your big idea. Yeah. And so, uh, he ran with, he ran with that idea. Him and his team ran with that idea and it helped get him his other than he was on Joe Rogan, which created a big bump for him. Sam Harris, then Joe Rogan created a big bump for him. Mm-hmm. And then the next like doubling of a social following was when he rolled out this, this idea. Um, and so uh, I think he, he's, he's liked me ever since, <laughs> not just because of that, but you know, it, it was somewhat helpful in creating a bigger platform and getting, getting the word out to more folks. It's pretty fantastic how well this presidential campaign ended up doing and the platform he still has. Mm. I think I first heard of him. Uh, he was on actually um, Freakonomics, you know, the... Um, mm-hmm. and that's where, Stephen Levitt. Yeah, Levitt. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, just fascinated by his story I think again it was probably three or four years ago when when that came out and I've been following him ever since. So maybe maybe down the road you can put in a word for for me an Irish uh, podcast host get some a future president on would be a good one. I mean you all maybe you're making waves over there in the political world. Maybe you'll get basic income before we do, you know. <laughs> maybe there's a route to it over there. Yeah, per- perhaps perhaps like and uh yeah, maybe that's something we can we can go into in detail as, as well. Um, so, no, that was just something I wanted to check in. And one other question I wanted to ask before we dive into the real stuff, as I was doing a bit of research, um, this one was fascinating, and you probably said it a few years ago. It's something I've been think- thinking a little bit about, weirdly enough, that you uh, you wanted to create a smart toilet. That's something you, uh, you've said in the past? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I briefly touched on that. I mean, so I, I that was... That was uh, in, in between ventures, um, and I had friends who had started uh, that were on the founding team at Nest, and so I was like, "Ah, oh, I might have the right people to do this." And it was when Twenty Three Me was kind of blowing up too, and people right. were sending you know samples away to learn things about themselves, uh, and so you know that didn't leave the back of the napkin. But it intuitively made sense to me that you know th- what doctors do when they need to collect more information is get a urine or a fecal sample. Mm. If there's some way to kind of automate and then uh, automate that process and then make it more regular, those check-ins, uh, what could you learn from there? Mm. Uh, it made intuitive sense. It was one of those things. It was a, it's a good idea. I probably I, I wasn't the right guy to go pull it off. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, you always have to think about, or at least I do, you know, think about your competitive advantages, you know, if you're the right person to, to make something happen. Because mm. um, it's always logistically more difficult <laughs> than you think it will be. I can imagine. Yeah, I've actually thought more about the actual process of using a toilet and how we use it. Is there a better way of doing it and uh, looking at it from a different perspective than just making it smarter? But um, again, maybe that's another conversation for another day. I'm talking to the wrong people <laughs> about that. Uh, no, I, I mean, it's still interesting, right? Like we see this and this is what the Apple Watch is doing. It's collecting data on your health regularly because previously we had a, you know, annual checkup with the doctor and that's it. That's the only time you got your vitals checked on, right? And what we're learning is uh, it's helpful to have that those interventions as soon as you can have them when you're, when you're having some sort of health crisis. And so, uh, you know, I imagine, I imagine it'll, it'll go from fiction to reality in most people's home in the next 10, 15 years. It's not too late. I don't think we, I haven't seen too many smart toilets out there. So you can still, whoever's mm. listening to this, maybe you could run with that idea and yeah, probably yeah. still, still, uh, you know, get a winner out of it. Absolutely. It's, it seems like a logical place to go that it's something that we interact with so frequently. And totally. you know, as you said, there's stuff coming out that, that could tell a lot about us. So um, it's valuable. Yeah, exactly. Very valuable. So, so Sander, I've, I've talked to many entrepreneurs and philanthropists and, and investors, probably not all in, in the one person. So I do want to hear, um, obviously, about all the stuff you've been doing over the last number of years. But I know your story starts with a bit of tragedy, and and that's probably a catapult for you, a catalyst for you to go down the route you go down. Can you can you maybe take me right back and t- tell your story a little bit for folks that are listening? Uh, yeah. So in my childhood story: um, I was uh, born to uh, an Olympic champion father mm-hmm. um, who was. Uh, famously, infamously uh, murdered in 1996 by a guy named John Dupont, uh, and this this event was later portrayed in a movie called Foxcatcher in a documentary called Team Foxcatcher. If you're a documentary person, mm-hmm. um, and so that's the I just wanted to get that out of the way because that's the tragedy yeah. y- you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was certainly 
I'd, I'd like to know what you meant in terms of like, it was a, it was certainly an inflection point, you know, it's, it's, it certainly, you know, moved me on a specific path. Um, and probably gave me exposure to a lot of things that maybe middle-class at middle-class at the time anyways, and then wealthy afterwards because of the civil trial that followed it. Uh, so I, I, in, in some ways that event, it's funny, like now I'm talking through it, gave me empathy on like both sides of the spectrum simultaneously. I suffered, you know, a type of trauma, uh, that's usually, um, unfortunately, you know, reserved in America for, uh, minorities and lower class individuals, you know, homicide, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, being raised by a single mother, a bunch of those things. And at the same time, uh, came into wealth because of it as well. Uh, and so much of what I do is informed by, you know, empathy because of all the relationships I've had in so many different directions and that come from my own experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, that's definitely. And when I said about the catapulting or catalyst, I suppose what I kind of meant more was, do you feel that that event set you on a different trajectory and, you know, had a huge impact on you becoming a philanthropist, not just an entrepreneur, but a philanthropist and having that, having those values has an impact on your, on your value set as a result of it. Yeah, I think, uh, one, I'm, you know, I'm really lucky in that, you know, my, my family, my mom and and my father were both extraordinary people that cared deeply about the well-being of other people. Right. Um, and so I think even before his death, um, you, my family always emphasized uh, the well-being of other people. Okay. Uh, if anything, I would say um, it didn't at first set me on a path of uh, philanthropy. Uh, you know, much uh, like much the opposite. I, you know, I was a screw up in high school. I went to five high schools, dropped out of high school. Um, wasn't you know. I was, I thought I was having fun at the time, but I was clearly, you know, recovering from, from this instant incident. Um, and it wasn't really to like, what really kind of more probably drives me to make an impact with folks is, uh, my father's legacy, uh, if, if anything, and he, you know, he went from a, a really great guy to almost like a martyr and you know how this happens when people pass you know, prematurely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- there was this legacy built around him. Uh, and his legacy is one of reaching across bridges and building f- friendships across cultures. Uh, and always, you know, talking to the little guy, even, you know, even if he didn't have, to, you know, he's famous for like training with the janitor at like a world championship tournament. He'd bring the janitor on, and, you know, work with them. And, and, uh, and so it's cool in a lot of ways. Like, I'm not sure if I would have been so focused on, um, continuing that legacy if he hadn't have passed, you know, and if, if, you know, some of his action hadn't been codified and, you know, put into lore in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so in that way, uh, it was certainly impactful, not to mention what I mentioned earlier, which is like the, um, the empathy of going through things like, like sudden loss and, you know, a murder and being raised by a single parent and, and, and all those things and being a, being a screw up because of it at times. Right. And, and seeing what it takes to bounce back from a situation like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the reason I guess I I can empathize with you, my mum was killed in a car crash when I was 11. So uh, although mm-hmm. it was a different circumstance, um, it's certainly, I think, as I reflect back and have gone through many different turning points over the last number of years until I got myself what I would consider properly together, probably sometime in my mid thirties, uh, right. had confidence to do what I wanted to do in, in you know, in the world. Um, it, it definitely informed lots of the earlier decisions and created a, a, a some way I think about self doubt and and kind of questioning yourself sometimes as a positive right because you're never you're devoid of ego in a in a way sometimes and mm-hmm. that that while can be detrimental it can be a a strength potentially as well you know hundred percent hundred percent I I really you know it's weird to say you're like grateful for things like that but I certainly uh, find myself thinking that at times you know my, um, gratitude for um, 
you know, that doesn't mean I wish it happened, but I'm, I'm grateful for the experience because I, I don't think I would be, uh, um, as well-rounded or thoughtful without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, no, thanks for sharing that. So maybe just moving ahead then, when did the idea of becoming an entrepreneur strike you? You've been serially successful. Um, and when I talk to entrepreneurs, some said, oh, it's in me from the start. It's always been there. Others are these accidental, accidental entrepreneurs. Which one do you fall into? You know, I, I really was just obsessed with, um, like I started becoming obsessed with just being around interesting people that are like, you know, uh, building things. And so I don't, I don't think at first I thought I was on my way to entrepreneurship. I was just really wanted to, you know, be in a room with people that were building things. And luckily, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. And so there was lots of friends who were in the industry and family members and things like that. And so I got to intern at one consumer tech startup, uh, called Kifi. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, moved up to like a, from an intern to a junior product manager and just got, you know, just got my feet wet in that experience. And then, uh, you know, between that and honestly, the privilege of having a little bit of uh, money to be able to invest in things and to, to at least hear about things like there's people often talk about the privilege of wealth as in like, oh, it's nice. Your life gets better. But like one of the things that uh, coming in some money does is everything becomes applicable right? It's like, yeah, sure. I'll hear what's going on in the startup world. Cause maybe I can make an investment in a startup. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, what we reward and look at as like intrinsic, like intelligence, you know, is built through these, these happenings of like, you know, successful people coming to me and talking to me about their smart ideas. Mm-hmm. And so a mix of a mix of that privilege that allowed me to, to hear about all these things that are happening in the world that made it feel possible meeting those people and understanding they're not gods, you know, it's just people with ideas, you know, they're trying to make it happen, how that works, you know, how you build a roadmap, how you build a team, these types of things, the demystification um, was helpful. And so from there, I launched a consumer tech startup that was uh, called Complete that was moderately successful upon launch. We had a decent amount of users, never hit that, you know, inflection point uh, where, you know, you go to the moon and Sequoia and all those (laughs) brand names are giving you money and Mm -hmm. all those things that are happening. Uh, And then have more recently kind of found my uh, rhythm in social justice entrepreneurship, um, starting both for-profit and nonprofit ventures that either uplift um, change makers, build, you know, help, help create a larger platform for them, or uh, more importantly at times finance them and make sure they they can do the work uh, they need to do. And so um, that's really, and you know, it's easier for me to do because I really deeply you know, believe in the impact there. So it's easy to get up and go after it, which is another, another privilege, right? Work ethic. We say so often is, uh, we treat it like it's an intrinsic thing. I don't know what my work ethic would look like if I didn't get to go after this stuff every day, you know, but it's because I am able to do so. Uh, it's, I'm having fun and, and, uh, that's a big part of it. Mm. Yeah. The intrinsic motivations are, are definitely something I, I deeply believe in and study and kind of try to get, get under the hood. And, and, and when I coach people is to try and tap into those, um, those a lot as well. Have you, have you had a, ever a process or how, how you went about kind of really understanding, you know, figuring yourself out and figuring out what those focus points, values, beliefs are have you ever gone through that kind of experience of of, of fine-tuning of what they are or was it more implicit yeah no i think um i think there were intentional um experiences i put myself through that uh that were kind of forcing mechanisms and figuring out who you are and what you want to do you know in the world um I have a nonprofit that supports refugees. My wife and I spent a month in Lesbos, Greece during the height of that island's uh, refugee crisis. Not mm-hmm. that it's still not experiencing a uh, really difficult time, but it was when, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people were coming a day over there and uh, have stayed involved there. And, um, you know, we spent January, we lived in uh, the refugee camp in January and uh, there's something about that experience where you realize how much suffering is taking place because of systems and policy, not because of uh, lack of resources. And like be on the flip side, doing some venture capital and seeing how how amazing our technology is and how easy it is for us to produce the things we need with very, very little labor. That um, kind of living in both those worlds, uh, mm. 
you know, create a built up, I want to say frustration, because that's not the energy like that powers like frustration or anger, but it, it did wake me up to, you know, how far we are from our maximum potential and how unnecessary suffering is. It might've been unnecessary in other area eras as well, but you know, at least there were famines, like they really ran out of food, you know, or they, mm-hmm. or they really didn't know what to do with folks, you know? And so, um, and the, the systemic nature of everything, I guess the understanding of the systemic nature of everything really, uh, got me focused on not just private sector success or like wealth, wealth building, but really trying to move the needle in terms of minimizing suffering and desperation. Mm-hmm. Mm. It sounds like you mentioned that being that privileged state of having some wealth to take that gamble and and I totally get where you're coming from. You, you've, I suppose, grew up in Silicon Valley, so in some ways you're exposed to that constantly and it's part of the culture and if you're not investing or not taking a gamble, you probably are seen as maybe the the odd one out in a way. Has fear ever come into your situation or, 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 or prevented you from doing anything? Or What's your relationship with that? With fear? Um no, but like I'm, I'm hesitant to not on the business side, but I'm hesitant to like, you know, I hate building like the mythological risk taking entrepreneur. It's like, I can, I can afford to fuck up, you know? And so, uh, I don't know what the real risk is. Like oftentimes when people are like, Oh man, you, you put yourself out there. I guess there's like some reputational stuff, you know, maybe you weren't ready and you hurt relationship, but to be honest, if you can play in this game, the people you meet along the way and the lessons you learn by doing this stuff exceed, you know, anything I could have been taught, you know, by, you know, or if I worked sales, you know, at some, you know, startup and not to dismiss that career. I'm just saying like, it wasn't a real risk. I gained so much by taking, you know, quote unquote risk and, and throwing myself into these arenas and meeting all these interesting investors and entrepreneurs. And, and, um, and so I, I've always seen, seen it. I mean, I don't look at it through a self selfish lens. Like I'm really trying to, you know, uh, be as impactful as I can, but I've also always seen, you know, leading initiatives and, and being part of interesting projects as such a, um, social benefit, professional benefit. Like I'm really not taking hits. Now, if you told me to invest all my money in something, I need to, you know, f- finance my house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people do that, you know? And so I try not to compare myself to, to folks who are doing that. Cause I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say like I would have that conviction with any of this stuff. Cause I'm, I'm not forced to have that conviction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making it sound like a, I'm a Rockefeller. I'm not a Rockefeller. Or anything. I'm all, I'm, but I'm just, I'm just saying I'm, 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 there's a cushion there. I've got a love, loving family too. So even if that goes away, I'm in a good spot. So, mm-hmm. um, so business wise, no, I'm motiv- my wife will tell you I'm motivated by fear in a lot of other places. I don't like jumping off things or, <laughs> or right. going too fast anywhere. <laughs> so there's other places in life where I'm motivated by fear. That's okay. You have some risk management strategies in there. Um, <laughs> when you think about some of the investments you've made, uh, and for those yeah. that are, you know, probably a standard enough question, but what you've learned from those ones that maybe didn't work out, uh, you know, with with your antenna up now. Can you sense yeah. things a lot sooner to, to get out? Just some of the experience you've learned lessons along the way on that? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Folks who have done it before. Like, I, I when I was a first-time founder and I was having a hard time raising money at times, I'd be frustrated. I'm like, why are you betting on the guy who failed three times? And he's yet to get a win. I kind of get that now. Yeah. You're like, he's got his team. He knows what he's doing. All those failures matter. You know, he's, I think, um, entrepreneurs who lead with a lot of vulnerability, um, you end up trusting them a lot and you ask them how they're going to solve for something. You're like, I don't know, man, it's an, it's, you know, it's a new world. This is our best guess. This is why we think this, but those fo- folks that can, it's kind of like the antithesis. What I like to see is like the antithesis of, you know, what we build up as the entrepreneur, like the Steve Jobs mythology of, you know, I, I know all the things you guys just don't see it. I see it like whatever the opposite personality of Steve Jobs, you know, at least the myth of Steve Jobs is mm-hmm. people are really vulnerable, you know, have been there a few times, you know, know the space really well. Um, you either worked in it or started something else in it. Um, those are the folks that uh, build a lot of trust really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other things, right? Traction helps. Like I'm, I get why investors wait to see traction on things. 
Uh, (laughs) Unless you really know the space, uh, you know, it's hard to predict what, what'll take and what, what don't, what, what doesn't. Mm -hmm. So waiting to see, uh, if things pick up in in an era where it's so cheap to build products, so easy to get an MVP out there. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's totally reasonable, especially if you're cutting a big enough check where you can afford to mm-hmm. in some capacity. Mm. The role of, um, you mentioned, I suppose, being in the circle with some some individuals that were great mentors, coaches along the way. How important has that been for you? And I guess, you know, on the flip side, how, how do you... How do you t- t- do you approach coaching, mentoring others that you kind of come across and, you know, just lessons you've taken from that? Yeah, I do. I do everything by committee. I don't have like a like mentor per se that I go to for everything, right? But mm-hmm. I do everything by committee. You know, as soon as I have an idea, I get my f- five friends. Luckily, I've, you know, at this point, I've, I've, um, I'm lucky to have a really great network and can usually talk to some pretty smart people in, you know, whatever space we're looking at or I'm thinking about, you know, starting something in and, um, you know, and anyone who knows me will say, you know, they'll get a couple texts from me a week like about ideas or what their stance is on something. I love, I love, uh, socializing ideas early, often talking to the smartest folks in the room about it, all those things. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I, I don't have a mentor in the traditional sense. I certainly have people that I'm like, I re- repeatedly go back to, uh, but, but I certainly, um, you know, and this was one of my tech startups that complete startup was, a it was called complete was a social to do app where you could write your tasks and you could make it public if you wanted to and start receiving recommendations just cause I find so much value in that. And also like the, um, you know, it's kind of BS that someone's going to steal your idea or whatnot. That, you don't see that play out, actually, in the real world. Uh, I've only benefited from, I'm a huge beneficiary of serendipity because that I throw so many things out there and people, you know, maybe they're not the right person, but they know someone I should be talking to. And uh, I've just been um, so, so lucky because of that kind of default nature. Cool. Yeah, I read. Um, excuse me. You know the book, um, Adam Grant, Givers and Takers. Have you ever read that one? Yeah, yeah. Give and take. I Give think. and take. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and uh, that, yes, that kind of resonates for me when you talk about serendipity and you know being more just a, a natural giver and giving stuff away rather than I think he also calls matchers in there as well, which is more quid pro quo. It sounds like you're more on the on the giver side. <laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time and I'm trying to even like, I haven't institutionalized it yet, but just making sure I reach out to folks, seeing what they're doing and seeing how I can be helpful. I mean, that's also like a privileged thing, right? It's, you know, I can, I can usually be helpful to people from, like, that are doing a wide variety of things. Uh, thanks to the network I have, but um, yeah, I tend to do that. I mean, look, uh, the reason I do that though, isn't like a, it's not a, out of like uh, some strategy to, you know, improve, improve my, you know, social network or whatnot. Um, it's really just because I've tried to become more mission aligned over the last few years. And so if my mission is, you know, advancing social justice, eradicating desperation, et cetera, I can only do so I can only lead so many things, but there's a lot of folks doing a lot of things. And if I can help out a little bit, they're helping me too. Like helping them, if you're mission driven, helping them help helps me really uh, in, in a way. I can't solve the you know world's problems by myself, but maybe I could you know move the ball an inch forward on a bunch of different verticals. I'm not focused at all on climate change. You know, it, it's not it's not one of the things I'm leading. It's not one of the things I'm investing in. Uh, but I know a lot of climate investors and I meet a lot of entrepreneurs and, you know, hopefully through those collisions, I'm, I'm helping a little bit there, you know? Uh, and so I do it almost selfishly as funny as that sounds, just so I can keep advancing my own personal mission and feel like, feel like I'm making a dent. Mm. I actually interviewed Peter Kalmus on the show about nine months ago. Have you heard of Peter Kalmus? He's one of, he's a climate activist. He's quite well known. He's in the U.S. He's on the West Coast, I think. Interesting guy. Um, you should look him up because he's done a lot of good stuff. He's put a few apps out there around that you can download and you can put in some, um, uh, I guess, some metrics that you can figure out how much <clears throat> CO2 emissions you're creating yourself on a year and right. s- certain simple ways that you can reduce cool. it yourself. He does some good good stuff and a couple of books out as well. 
Um, but I guess talking about the most recent, like nine months, right, we've gone through COVID. I don't know how that's impacted your approach to work over the last, uh, to life and work over the last number of months. And what is, how, how has that influenced things you're looking at, investments you're, you're thinking about? Yeah, well, I really, you know, shifted to more of an operator role over the last nine months, um, mostly focused on this uh, this attempt at a fascism that our, that our orange friend over here uh, tried and continues to try. Um, and so in the midst of that, uh, I started three different initiatives, one called One for Democracy that asked wealthy people to pledge 1% of their net worth to improving and protecting our democracy. And that looks a lot like investing in community organizers who are getting low propensity voters to turn out, et cetera. Um, and uh, another called Defeat by Tweet, where like the everyday person could donate a penny or two every time Trump tweeted, and that would go to a syndicate of swing state black organizers. Um, and so I was, um, I was more preoccupied with the fascism attempt uh, because you can't solve any problems after you lose that fight. And so, so I was focused over there, but during COVID also my refugee organization, we ran a warehouse and partnered with the Red Cross to turn into a COVID hospital uh, to serve refugees at um, Europe's largest refugee camp. Wow. That, that's, and how has that worked out so far? Is that still going, obviously still? Hit? You know, Greece has done a pretty incredible job with the disease. Um, and so, you know, and being on an island is helpful too. You can really shut it down. And so Lesbos, luckily, when during that partnership, we, uh, we didn't have any cases in the camp. And it's, the camp was in a state where if the virus did get in there, it would have probably wreaked havoc. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still early enough on. Obviously, they don't have the equipment for it, et cetera. Um, but you know, we're proud to be able to stand it up and, um, and respond to the moment. I think, you know, I always want to feel like when I look back at different, different times, you know, and, and wearing my, uh, you know, 2020 glasses, uh, I, I can say like, I sussed out what the biggest issues were and, and I made an attempt at responding to them and answering the bell. Mm, no, fair, fair play, fair play to you. So what is a typical day like? now for you or a typical day or week what what are you doing to keep busy and what are the, the projects on, on the horizon yeah so my official role is an entrepreneur in residence at uh, galaxy which is a family office in new york um the things i'm occupied with by at the moment i've got about five projects cooking um one a defeat by tweet continues on uh, trump's talking about 2024 and so maybe we just keep this thing rolling uh one for democracy is going to turn into an institution where we ask wealthy people to take an annual pledge to improve our democracy. It was after this last election, it's clear our democracy isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's at risk in a number of ways. We've seen a lot of other democracies fall in the last 20 years. Uh, and so, uh, but it's not really a philanthropic space right now, like dem- democracy, right? Maybe political giving, but democracy, uh, you know, strengthening. And so we're trying to re- create an institution that makes that a real space. Um, do you want me to keep going through them or I don't know if you have, yeah, yeah, you no, know, uh, keep, keep going. So it's interesting. Yeah. We have a, a refugee organization I mentioned called when we band together, we're now focused on creating community centers in Lesbos, Greece. Uh, so we're launching a sports and wellness center where people can come and either get everything from trauma counseling until to uh, wrestling practice to, you know, basketball to, you know, kids arts classes, et cetera, like really kind of normalize life, give people a place to like grow and, and uh, we want to turn that into a model of con- continuing to rent local warehouses, help the local economy, and provide places that uh, create a joyous, you know, normalized atmosphere for people who have been through, you know, so much. Um, and then we're developing a one of the other projects that we're developing a med- VR meditation Ooh. application called Maloka that I'm really, really excited about. That's bringing kind of the ideas of like gamification and moving away from like the over-intellectualized guided meditation uh, Mm -hmm. field and and doing more visual based, the stuff that's really good in virtual reality, gamifying it uh, in ways that are, will feel familiar and fun for folks and and just trying to bring uh, a lighthearted element to a space that, you know, has, has become somewhat over-intellectualized and created a little bit of a, uh, 
walled walled garden. It's not walled garden, but it's it's just it created distance for a lot of folks uh, who maybe feel like they can't step into it. Yeah, no, that sounds really. What's the name of the 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 company or the the project that you're working? Maloka. It's, it's is called it? Maloka. Maloka. Right. Yeah. Cool. I'm working with uh, the co-founders uh, Suki and Beth Novogratz. They wrote a book called Just Sit that had a similar mission of like demysticizing meditation, simplifying it, and just getting more people to adopt the practice. Wow. Uh, and so th- this is bringing that same mission to a new platform. Mm, that, that's fascinating because that is something we talk about regularly on the show um, and something I do on a, on a, on a daily basis. Um, but I think the idea of doing it was, was within virtual reality. I'd imagine your eyes are open, obviously, right? And a lot of the, the challenge people early on, I suppose, when they're meditating with closed eyes or even it, they can't really find it at all useful with their eyes open because they're getting totally. very distracted. And when your eyes are closed, you're more likely to go off and imagine things and that can be distracting <laughs> yeah, yeah, as well yeah. so i wonder what the experience is like with the eyes open in a vr or, or you know is there, is there, can you explain it a little bit or how, how to yeah, yeah 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 so we have we have what's called a vortex that you're able to like step into uh, it looks a little bit like i don't know a kaleidoscope or like a 60s you know a 60s style cool. trippy uh art, art, art project that's going yeah, exactly. You got it. And, uh, and, um, you know, but it's got a breathing guide within it as well. And so to your point, early on in meditation, it can be really hard to not have your mind just explode as soon as you quiet down, especially in this era where we have so much input, right? You're always looking at a phone, you're always looking at something. Um, and so, uh, so to have a visual guide and to focus on your breath through that and to have a little less words, you know, in your, in your ear and telling you to feel a certain way or whatnot. And to, to just do the practice, um, we think it'll land for a lot of folks, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to your point, it'll land for folks who are just starting on that journey mm-hmm. and, and figuring out how to do it right. Right. That's like constantly in your head when you're in the beginning, like, am I doing it right? And so, uh, to just have those visuals and, and a really beautiful, uh, soundtrack, uh, guide you through it. I think it, it, it'll land for a lot of folks. Wow, that sounds really, really cool. It's definitely uh, the next frontier, I would imagine, and and a whole area that um, could could really open it up and, and make it more accessible for for people, right? Um, no, totally. Yeah. We're betting on you know Facebook bought Oculus for a couple billion dollars, so we're betting they're going to want to make good on that investment and make sure you know the platform's adopted. And so, you know, our bet is let's be early over there. We'll be early and and we'll have something really, really polished and it's built for that platform, wow. you know, instead of porting over from mobile or whatnot. Wow. Uh, so, so you know, it's a measured bet. You never know. It's reliant on Oculus taking off and, and VR being a real platform that a lot of folks adopt. I think the pandemic's been somewhat helpful. Not that that's, that's kind of distasteful to say <laughs> that, but in terms of virtual reality adoption, it's been yeah. helpful. Yeah. Um, and See, even with Facebook's new, the Oculus 2 they just put out, um, it is, you know, it's white instead of black. It's it's thinner, it's leaner, it's women in all the advertisements using it. And so I think Facebook's figuring out virtual reality. It's nice for gaming, but there's so much more you can do on there. Uh, I use, I do a boxing class on there that I get a good workout in. It's like kind of like Guitar Hero, but you're boxing. Um, mm. And so I think actually... You know, when everything's said and done, health and wellness will have a really, really big uh, share of the uh, engagement in virtual reality. Mm, I can imagine that. That, and I'm just triggering it off my mind there. What's the um, the Peloton as well? For probably, you know, the the bike that could tie nicely Crushed into it. something like that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. The Peloton's another great example of like folks who've really benefited from us. You know, both everyone's stuck at home, but every, also everyone got to slow down a bit. And you know, I know if if you didn't get, um, you know, if you didn't get sick from this and you weren't struggling financially from this, I know a lot of folks have gotten healthy during this time too, as they kind of slowed down and created some new habits. Yeah, yeah, and actually, one of the things I'm recommending to people in what I do in my day job is is, is talk about a lot of that and and help people um, counteract it. And you know, with the commute being taken away. It's introducing totally. a fake commute or a virtual commute mm-hmm. into the day life uh, in the morning and the afternoon to separate, you know, the boundaries between work and life. And that that's essential as well, I think. Yeah, we're all trying to figure that out, right? It's like, what is, we all did the thing where this thing started. Uh, and when we went back to work, uh, we, we 
scheduled 14 Zooms in a row from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. and never put a lunch or like a walk in there. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, we, I, at least, you know, from my my experience, I trapped myself in a, in, a, in a weird, unnecessary type of hell for like two weeks there before I figured out yeah. how to do this a little better. Yeah, yeah. I, I was probably somebody that was working from home before it all, so I kind of had it a bit figured out. But I remember you had talk, a rhythm. I, did, I yeah, I remember talking to a few people that had been a complete shift, and they were like just not they weren't, weren't doing well at all. They had no boundaries. They hadn't figured out how to to cut that the cord at you know seven or eight o'clock in the evening, and it was just yeah, definitely an adaptation period for for a lot of people. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. That's that's nice. You had a rhythm. I was in New York. New York interrupts you all the time. Mm. You know, you walked. You you walk everywhere. You're on the side. I, I when I talk about New York, I like temporarily adopt like a deeper New York accent. <laughs> but you walk everywhere. You you you're on the subway. So you have all those little breaks. You have a million little breaks. You're meeting with a thousand people. You know, and so. Uh, to go from that to you know walking twenty thousand steps a day by accident, <laughs> to like being in the house, I I had none of those. Yeah. Uh, but I'm figuring it out. Figuring it out. A couple of final ones that I like to just kind of sprinkle in, and they're more, I suppose, around <clears throat> kind of personal hacks or things you do to to get stuff done from a from yeah. a goal setting perspective. Do you have an approach for setting goals, managing goals, achieving goals? Yep. This is honestly, so I was a, a high school dropout and ended up doing pretty well in college. Uh, I was valedictorian nominee in college and, mm-hmm. um, you know, had a couple startups I started. And th- those two experiences weren't separated by that much time, but it really was driven by the adoption of just a few habits. Um, and, you know, one was a good morning routine. Nothing I'm going to say is that surprising. One was a great morning routine. I use an app called Streaks. I'm looking at it right now that uh you know you can set up your your, your habits it's like holding, having good habits like holding your own hand you know it's like being your own mentor yeah essentially and so uh I, you know there's not nothing magical about uh you know my morning routine other than i get up pretty early you know so i get up early i hydrate i meditate check my calendar inbox zero and then spend like a good hour an hour and a half with my wife which you know keeps our relationship strong take a walk together all that stuff uh and so so having that was great. And then, um, the way I set up my tasks, um, in all the different projects I do, I always have my annual goal, my quarterly goal at the top of it. Mm-hmm. And so every week on Mondays, I set up my weekly goals. And because I, I, I'm always looking at what the big goals are, I make sure they're correlated. Cause I found if I didn't do that, I could run away with things that felt busy, but didn't advance me towards where I was going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and do you use an app for that as well? Like I use Trello with for all of them. Those. I use too many. Right. Well, there's nothing specific. <laughs> I like try, you know, I use Asana uh, for my team stuff, but I'll, even then they were complaining today. So I almost, uh, I, I started us on Monday. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Asana, but I try all of them. And then, you know, the team ones, I find a little for some throughout the day. And so usually it's use the team ones to get organized. And then I use a to-do app called Slash. Uh, that's like pretty amazing. If you have ADD, it's fantastic because you you create a list for everything you're you're gonna do for the day, and you slash, and it actually sits like a little. Uh, uh, it sits your current task on your desktop. Right, right. So it keeps on front of you, but you also get that dopamine hit from getting it closed out. I would imagine. With oh the yeah, slash. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I'm I'm not I'm not addicted to much. Maybe coffee and that. <laughs> like, I'm fascinated when you said you hydrate first thing in the morning. I'd be a five. 15 is my alarm goes off and and that's been the biggest game changer in my life and like that it's not rocket science it's just discipline and getting up and doing i tend to try and get three things done by 7 a.m before the day really starts and yeah yeah that's it it's it's the game changer because i have that sense of achievement already and i you know you feel a little bit better but i i tend to drink coffee nearly immediately i get up and do 10 minutes of stretching and meditation and then a coffee and a slice of a slice of toast um but i'm trying to trying to see if should i switch the coffee out and just drink some water or something like that you you hydrate water first thing is it you I, I do water at five and then um at seven thirty i switch so i do all those things and to your point it's a great time to also get those couple tasks done because no one's hitting you up yet you got no inbound mm-hmm. i keep the phone off a lot too I keep the phone off and away from me um now Apple's connected everything, so I get my text on my <laughs> on my phone on my computer. But um, 
but try to get those things done. And at seven thirty, my wife and I will make a coffee, and then we'll take a walk together and talk about you know the day's goals and how we can help each other and all those things. Mm, very cool. And last one, then, what is the most recent thing that you've learned that has been really useful for you? Something that happened of of late that <clears throat> you've put into practice, maybe that's been valuable. The older I get, like the the more I'm realizing the cliches are all true. And Man, like, you know, the cliches and the basic lessons are true. And I was just being an asshole, not listening to any of them and thinking like, you know, it was something else. Um, that is and so, so uh, yeah, freaky because I actually I, find uh, more and more recently and actually just today, um, one I heard, <coughs> I'm sorry for interrupting because it's just popped in. No, it's great. And uh, um, there was something, uh, it'll come to me, but it was one of the most obvious cliches that I've been hearing for years and um, and it made the most sense ever because I had experienced something in the last couple of days in, in work that um, triggered it. I, it. I just can't remember the exact cliche now, but it's it's something to do with, you know, um, uh, if you're feeling it, I'm feeling it, or, you know, you're kind of picking up on the... the uh, the energy and on the call and if you're feeling that something is wrong that person is feeling yeah, yeah, it yeah. as well you know so right 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 right. there's all these you know um and so anyway so i've i've, I've I, as a broad lesson i've learned that that there's there's all this wisdom that's like already out there for us and just like just pay a little bit more attention uh to, to all those things they're probably true um and then more specifically um making a good hire can make such a big difference. And I think probably just out of curiosity or uh, a desire to, to learn things, I hang out in roles and in spaces where I could probably hire, hire someone more talented and that, you know, in that particular role, I'm good at catalyzing things and I'm good enough at many things, but a good hire can really free you up, can take your company to the next level and um and so i've made a couple hires recently uh one in particular uh that really freed me up to do the things that i'm uniquely good at or i'm starting to become uniquely good at mm. um and so you know like i said you know a lot of folks will probably tell you that like you know if you if you hire a good person it can make a huge difference mm. but i think almost out of like either stubbornness a combination of like stubbornness ego curiosity i like would hang out in roles longer than i needed to hang out in them and so i'm i'm just trying to more quickly identify when I don't need to be there or maybe have the resources to get someone else there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense too. And, and maybe that's an opportunity for, remember we talked about mentors or coaches and people highlighting those blind spots somewhat can totally. potentially be good return on investment in those uh, conversations as well. So so that sounds sounds really interesting. Uh, Xander, just to wrap it up, so you have your own podcast, maybe share a little bit about that and how people can find more um, info about yourself. Yeah, I've, so I have a podcast called What We Don't Know, where I talk to leading change makers, Nobel Peace Prize nominees, uh, you know, presidential candidates, as you mentioned, about the problems of our time, the issues of our time. Uh, and, you know, these conversations about some of these things are out there, but I found they're oftentimes talking to academics, or there's this like sorrowness to discussing these uh, topics. And when you talk to activists that are that are moving the needle and making an impact, it can be so inspiring. You keep, one, you'll you'll learn in ways you just don't learn when you're talking to academics or you know hearing a journalist talk about it, just hearing it firsthand from them. And then you'll be so inspired by the solutions these folks are you know have created, are creating uh, the motivation and 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 what they're trying to do in the world. Um, and so I, because I was working at this family office, I help with the foundation. I meet a lot of these folks through that. I've started initiatives that fund a lot of these folks. Uh, I just felt like um, I was getting like a uh, update on a monthly basis in morality, in in you know how the world should be and how the world could be. Uh, I became so much more optimistic talking to all these folks. And so one, selfishly, I wanted to continue to learn from all of them. And, and uh, two, I wanted to share, share these like amazing people and these amazing conversations uh, with more and more people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you've you've nailed it <laughs> from my perspective. I guess I've I've been inspired. I've enjoyed listening to you as well, and it's great that we can have the conversation and share it out there. And without doubt, people pick up on these things. And just you know, the usual one thing that somebody might take out of this conversation might be very different to the other person. But there's lots of good things in there. So, so look, thanks a million for taking the time out, man. It was really cool to chat to you. It was a very interesting story, and yeah, look forward to hearing more in the future. All right, brother. Thank you so much for having me on, man. No, all good. Take care. And Have I'll a good one. Pr- probably get this one out in the next week or so, before, probably this side of Christmas. So um, I'll I'll be in touch and uh, I'll get it on Twitter and we can we can share it with the world and tag Andrew Yang in it as well. So <laughs> all right, all right, we'll get him over here. All right, brother. All right, man. Take care. Great one. Good luck. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.